0: G2. Oh. Um, I, so like, like said, my name is Holly and I'm a student worker here and um, I am also uh, a thief. Yeah, I know, it's awkward as well because I'm preaching to you. Um, <laughs> no, so I'll, I'll explain further. So um, I, I grew up in church and uh, my, my family um, took me to Sunday school every week. Um, when I was a little girl, and um, in Sunday school we had something called the birthday box. Now the birthday box was basically just a just a shoebox um, in, in, covered in wrapping paper, and, um, and it had the lid on it, and it had like a hole cut in the top, so um, you know you couldn't see inside, but you could reach in and then you know get something out, get a, a birthday present out of the birthday box. Um, but you know, all the presents were all, funnily enough, just just biblical-themed stationery. So you know, on a good year, you'd get like a Noah's Ark ruler, or a I don't know, a feeding of the five thousand pencil, or a, like a Revelation sharpener. I don't know. Like you, so, it's like great. And I, uh, as a little girl, I still do the one the, oh, back then. I love stationery. I think it's great. What a gift. So um, I, um, you know, but my birthday is in December. So um, now I love it because yeah my birthday's part of like the big build up to you know Harlem days are it coming, it's, it's Christmas. So I kind of pretend in my head that that everyone's excited, not because it's Christmas or the Christmas breaks coming up, but because it because it's my birthday, Jesus' birthday, my birthday. yeah sorry. Lord. So um so basically, um birthday box exciting. So at about the age of like six or seven, um I was like right, this is the week, this is the Sunday before my birthday, so I'm like limbering up for the birthday box, ready to, ready to get my present out, and, and then the birthday box just didn't arrive, and I was like, I know, I know. thank you, I got one R, <laughs> thank you, <Mary. laughs> um, so, um, so the birthday box didn't arrive, and I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's just because, you know, maybe, maybe they do it after, you know, they do it after the week after. The Sunday after your birthday, you know. Um, and, and that week was like Nativity week, so I don't know, it was busy and people were dressing up in costumes and acting all out. So I was like, you know, maybe just, you know. Um, you know, this often happens, you know, people will just write you a Christmas card and just go, oh, and by the way, happy birthday or whatever. I was like, that's just, that's just the way it is. But then the next week came and went and, and no birthday box. And then all of a sudden it's January and everyone else is getting the birthday, happy birthday. They're getting the birthday box and I haven't had it yet. Um, so I uh, found myself a matter of weeks later, having got quite bitter about uh, my lack of b- biblical stationery, uh, in the Sunday school cupboard by myself with the birthday box and so i just lifted the lid so i broke all the rules of the birthday box i lifted the lid and i had a browse and i chose i remember really vividly like an eraser in the shape of a bear and it had this lovely teddy on it and he was holding like a heart-shaped cushion it said jesus loves you i was like yeah i'll have it so i took it and um, i took it and ran and took got the bibles or whatever i was meant to be getting and um and went off with, with my eraser and then um you know, the weeks passed and I just couldn't bring myself to use the eraser. every time I got it out, like, the bear's eyes would bore into my very soul and I'd be like... Oh my goodness, Jesus loves it. Does he love me? Because I stole the eraser. I don't know anymore. Am I saved? If I was on the ark, would I make the cut of the ark? Would I not? I don't even know. So like, I just started panicking about... I was a very pious child. I started panicking about like eternal things and existential crisis at the age of seven. Um, and so I eventually kind of engineered a situation in which I would be back in the Sunday school cupboard again and put it back. Like, So I didn't even get the eraser. So... Bit of a non-event, really, but you're the people who just sat and listened to a story about a seven-year-old who almost stole something, so who's a loser now? Um, so, so um, um, basically, I, I just I do wonder sometimes like how far I've actually come. I, I don't, you know, my stationary theft days are well and truly behind me, and I'm not as bitter about my birthday being in December, but... Um, actually, in terms of that kind of crisis of am I good am I bad i don't even know anymore um, how far have I actually come from that from from that little girl who didn't really like clearly kind of missed what what god's about how does God save us how does God um, you know make us good like, I, like how far have I actually come from that am i am I getting it right now how do I, how do I know i'm getting it right? Are you meant to get it right i i don't really know and and so in um, the series that we're following at the minute, in looking at, at Noah and this, and this weird ancient story of destruction and creation and floods and rainbows, like that throws up a whole other load of questions about who, who is God? What is he like? Am I good? Am I bad? Am I saved? How, how does God save us? How does he save me? what happens if I steal an eraser again? (laughs) So we're going to be continuing with this story of of Noah today. We're going to be looking at um, this this old story um, and and grappling with the tensions that this story throws up. I think we we don't want to just kind of go, oh, it it, doesn't make sense to me, so I'm just going to to say, that that bit of battle just doesn't count. Um, we, We need to grapple with the tensions that it raises. We want to learn from it. We want to learn, who is God? How does he save us? And we're going to look at this story of Noah through the lens of covenant. So, we all know the story. God tells Noah to to build an ark, so he survives a massive flood that will destroy everything. So Noah builds the ark, takes two of every animal and, and his family, and they all sail in the ark while the floods destroy everything. All living things. So and then um, during that kind of course towards the end of it, um, Noah sends out those those doves that n- no one seems to really get. Um, so he sends out the doves a few times, for, like a traffic update or something, and then um, eventually the floods dry up and the rainbow appears. God promises to never flood again, and um, everyone's happy, right? These are the highlights, these are the bits that we all know. But from this version, from that really short version, what can we learn? If you're bad, you drown. And if you're good, you have to live in a boat with animals for like a year. I'm not sure which one I'd rather. Um, but rainbows are lovely. So, um, so we're going we're to re-examine this story. We're going to really pull it apart and, and look at it through this, through this ancient word, this, this covenant word, Um, we're going to look at this tale of obedience and endurance and then fill in the gaps of the highlights we've just whizzed through and by the time we're done, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of why the story actually might make sense. Um, This is important because actually this is the story of how God didn't write off humanity. It's the story of how God bound himself to us and cut off any easy or clean avenues for saving us. This is the story of of covenant, of an unbreakable promise made by God to save us rather than erase us. Let's trace the story of Noah through the lens of covenant then. So before we crack on, um, I think we should just get a quick definition of what um, the word covenant actually means. Um, So a covenant is basically an unbreakable vow between uh, two people or or two parties. Um, So it's like this binding promise and it's, um, it's really serious. It's, you, like, bind yourself like, on pain of death. It's this vow, and it's like saying, I'm, I take this, this covenant, this promise, so seriously um, that um, if I break it, I'll be like, sorry, I've got hair in my mouth, and it's very annoying, and I'm just trying to find it. We can't carry on until it's gone. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, there we go. There we go. So it's gone. We're all all right. Covenant, you'll remember the definition now. Um, so um, I take it so seriously that if I break it, um, it like, comes from the word cut. Like you can cut me apart. Like you can cut me apart like the animals that they used to sacrifice. You can cut apart my character, my body, all of that stuff. So it's like this very, very serious, serious, de- on-death promise. So God makes a covenant with, with Noah, symbolised by the rainbow to never destroy the earth again by a flood. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens between the flood and the rainbow that isn't just filler, but it's actually the key to understanding um, this story fuller. So we're going to start um, in your Bibles where the flood ends. We're going to pick up where Noah takes his first shaky steps onto dry land, off the ark, and we're heading towards God establishing his covenant with Noah in chapter 9. So, it's Genesis 8, verse 18. What page number is it in the Bibles? Go on, first one, competition. Six. Six? <laughs> oh, that's Barbie, doesn't it? Near the beginning. Whatever it is. We're going to um, flip between the end of of chapter 8 here and chapter 9. So, Noah came out of the ark, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. (coughs) Hold on, So, so Noah gets out of the ark. Having lived in there for days, in fact, months, and surrounded by the thundering of the animals, like rushing past him to get at the, at the confines of the upper the floor, shaking as animals of every size and every kind fly past him, Noah takes his first tentative steps onto dry land. Can you imagine? Can you imagine stepping onto land that you haven't seen for what feels like forever? Can you imagine stepping onto a land washed clean and made totally blank by absolute devastation and destruction of nature? You're stepping onto land that you saw crack open and sink beneath the waves of the deep. Land that will never feel quite as solid, quite as safe, quite as permanent as it did before. Noah's witnessed something close to the apocalypse. He has seen firsthand nature at its most destructive. He's looked out of his window and seen the wrath of God, the waters of judgment overwhelming the earth. Talk about trauma. Whatever we believe about the validity or the literal truth of Noah's story, we need to grasp the, the scale of it, the, the humanness of the main character. Back to verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the the clean animals and clean birds he sacrificed, burnt offerings on it. Can I just say that sacrificing some of your animals when you've just spent years building an ark for them and feeding them and caring for them and naming them and you've only just set them free. Oh, no, hold on. Like that's, that's quite a risky thing. You've got, like, a limited stock there. And you, but also really disappointing for those animals. We're free! No. Um, but actually, this, this picture, even though it seems a bit... Weird and a bit ancient and a bit strange and and gory. What hits us about it actually is that Noah, um, in this brave new world, this this crazy blank landscape, um, has no idea where he stands in relation to nature or to God or or to anything. So he prioritises worship and thanking God above anything else. He'd rather um, spare a few animals but have some kind of access or some kind of idea of, who are you, God? Where do I stand? What what happens now in this new world? I'm of the old order. This is the new order. Where where do I stand? He's had a really good dose of perspective, and he doesn't swagger off the ark like, I'm the chosen one. I'm the good guy that made it. He calls out to God, like, I'm so relieved I survived. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for your protection. He's completely confused as to what's next. He's seen his world fall apart, literally, and probably just wants some kind of assurance or some security, and he just wants to access again who God is and and how he saves. And to access that, to access who God is, how does he save, sacrifice is the only way that Noah knows how. Let's continue to verse 21. Um, We get the first glimpse of God's covenant. Um, Noah does the sacrifices, and the Lord smells the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Every inclination of man's heart, is evil from childhood. What a weird way to respond to Noah's burnt offerings. At first glimpse, it seems like God's actually just a bit ungrateful. Surely the order of things is that Noah um, makes a sacrifice, and so then um, God reacts to that kind of holy peace offering, that you know really good effort, by making the covenant, right? That, that just makes sense. It's like a reward for Noah's commitment. Why would God say um, "You know, every inclination of humanity's heart is, is evil in reaction to Noah looking pretty holy as far as I can see? That doesn't look like an evil inclination. It makes more sense for God to say, Good effort, Noah. Well done for sticking it through. And in return, here's an unbreakable promise. Yeah? No. God's covenant is not a reaction or a reward for anything Noah has done. Way before Noah even sets foot on the ark, way before the first raindrop falls, before the ark even exists, before it even has blueprints, covenant is in God's mind. God assures Noah that he'll make a covenant with him. Chapter 6, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. Covenant comes before anything else. God's unbreakable promise always comes first. God, divine creator and sustainer of the rolling sphere of the entire universe, almighty creator, makes himself accountable to a man who hasn't done anything yet. The covenant of life, that promise of never again, is in mind all the way through. In fact, that phrase about every inclination of man's heart is is evil from childhood is a repetition from before the flood in chapter 6. God says it beforehand. When God is lamenting the state of humanity and stating his reasons for, for sending a flood in the first place, the reason given for sending the flood is the same reason given for giving the covenant. God doesn't save us because we impress him or because we prove our worth to him. The very nature of the covenant is that it always comes first. And so it's unearned. um, God's mind isn't changed by Noah's behaviour. Noah can't miss out by accident. So that means that when Noah offers his sacrifices to God, it makes no difference as to whether God will establish his covenant with him or not. Noah can't earn it or cause it. Noah hasn't impressed God into making an unbreakable promise of life. God was always going to make it anyway. In that full knowledge from beginning to end that, that man's heart would always be inclined towards evil. The sacrifice Noah offers only really acts as a point of access to God. It's just a, a thank you, a, a realignment of Noah's priorities. It's like a childlike hand just reaching up to Father God, just, I just need something of you. But it doesn't seal the deal for God. It doesn't prove to God that humans aren't that bad after all. We, I think we do this really often. I don't know about you, but for me, I'll just be like, oh, I just, I just need, I just need this. I just need this extra thing. How does God save us? How does God establish his covenant with us? And even though we all know, all those of us who follow Jesus, you know, wherever you're at on that journey, we all know that it's like this unearned thing, like you can't earn it, it's grace, but still we're like, we just need to have more self-control. I just... I just need to find a better church. I just need to find a mentor. I just need to have the discipline to get up five minutes earlier in the morning and pray. I just need uh, to find this. I just, I just need to be like Noah. I just need to be more obedient. I need to be able to hear the audible voice of God. They can, I'm sure they can hear the audible voice of God. I just, oh, I just need a day off. I just need some rest. I need a retreat day or. Oh, maybe I just need God to just tell me what to do. Like, there's clearly, he, like, there's clearly a path and I'm, I'm not getting it right. Or, oh, I just need to be bolder. Or maybe I need to tell someone about Jesus and, and then, I'll, then everything will click into place. Or, um, oh, I need, I need to get a better job because I'm not really changing the world in my job and I hate it. So I'll just, <laughs> like, I'll just find another job. Or maybe I just need to press on with this, this job. No, you don't need to. You don't need to do any of that. You don't need it. God saves you anyway. He's already promised life to you. All that stuff might be part of the journey. It might be part of on the way of figuring all of that out. But actually, you don't need any of it. He won't save you. How do you think God saves you? It's through His covenant. Not through anything that we can do or earn. God binds himself in covenant to imperfect humanity, and it's totally, totally one-sided. He knows that we'll get it wrong. He knows that you're not nailing it. He gets it. He said it in even just in the establishment of that promise of life. He knew we couldn't keep our side of the bargain. So, he makes this unbreakable vow to reach down and join us in the mess of our lives, to limit himself, to make himself accessible, rather than just erasing the mess from the face of the planet and the face of your life. You can't earn that. Why are you chasing someone who's already bound to you? What security are you seeking? How do you think God saves you? So, why make the covenant at all? Does God just feel sorry for us? Verse 21, Noah does the sacrifices and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Hmm. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart. The Lord smelled, the Lord can smell, that's news. Um, (laughs) This seems a a bit weird and a bit odd, but it's another glimpse of what covenant actually is. God isn't far off. He's so close that he can, he's not just distantly aware of, oh, that, that, I think Noah's burning something. Um, actually, it, he's, he can smell the burning of the sacrifices. And it's not the smell of burning flesh and hair that, that God's like, mmm, what a pleasing aroma. Um, it, that, that's not what's pleasing to God. That, that's gross. Um, what's, what, what? The Hebrew word used here for smells, um, just stay with me on this one. The Hebrew word used here for smells is used only once again in Genesis. And it's in this syn- scenario that you can read about later, um, where, and when a father called Isaac catches the smell of his firstborn's clothes. So his firstborn walks in and Isaac can't, he's actually blind, so he, obviously he's very reliant on his other senses. Um, and he catches the smell of his firstborn's clothes, his firstborn son, his pride and joy. And in the same breath of love of, of life, and his recognition and devotion, he bestows his inheritance. His blessing and his honour on his child. That's the word used for God. Catching the scent of Noah. Just doing what only Noah can think. What he, he, I don't even know what to do. He's just, oh, I'll just give some sacrifices. Like, that's amazing and holy. But at the same time, it's God's just like, oh, you're just being you. It's that instinctive recognition that you have. So it's like when you walk, uh, when you see your parents or you walk into your parents' home or, or like your spouse or, or, or your children or something, and they've got that, not, not a gross smell, but like, it's like that comforting, rec- that, that smell, that scent of recognition, which is just familiar and it's home and it's nostalgic And it's not just the the meals that your mum cooks or the washing powder that they use. It's like that, ah, you're here, the smell of home, the memories, the relief of, ah, it's you, it's you. I love that it's you. I'm so glad that it's you. I'm home. In that breath, God recognises Noah for exactly who he is and where he's at. God recognizes and he knows where he's been and where he'll end up. And he blesses him anyway with that covenant. He catches one breath of him. And in the same breath, he says his covenant in his heart, not just out loud, but in the very depths of his inmost being. That's his covenant with us. Never again, never again. He recognizes that tiny speck of confused, wandering humanity. And he says, never again. It flows straight from intimate recognition of us, of, of who Noah is and of, and of who we are as, as humanity. Covenant is personal, it's intimate. God chooses to save you. Not some perfect version of you, not even just the you that sits in the chair on a Sunday at G2 and, and listens, but the you wherever you are. He's chosen to save you right where you are. It's strange that what seems to be at first glance this story of a far-off, distant God condemning the world for its sin is actually a story of God stooping to involve one man in the recreation of the earth. What seemed to be a story of death and destruction and a pointless promise is actually a story of life And rebirth, and one of the most important promises to our understanding of who God is and how He saves. You see, the covenant isn't just a lovely ending to an otherwise grim story topped off with a rainbow. The covenant is a binding agreement between imperfect man and perfect God, an unbreakable promise of unearned intimacy with God that cuts off the option to wipe the slate clean in quite the same way again. The substance of the covenant with Noah is fundamentally physical. Um, Chapter 9, verse 11, uh, Never again will all life be cut off from the earth by the the waters of a flood, but its significance, it's just physical, but its significance penetrates to the very core of how God saves us. God binds himself for the benefit of humanity. Almighty God limits his options for saving the world. No more floods. No more mass wipeouts of sin. That clean-cut yet costly method of erasing the brokenness and the corruption and the darkness of our world through wiping it out with a flood just isn't an option for God anymore. God promises to save us rather than erase us. God keeps his promises He doesn't give the rainbow as a reminder just in case he forgets. Um, The rainbow is a sign of his commitment for our benefit. It shows that God's promise is to to save is ever before him. He cuts off the option of cleansing and baptising the earth. God decides he'd rather die. He'd rather take the rap himself than watch humanity drown again. How does God save us? He keeps his unbreakable promise. God binds himself to us and limits himself in his promise that ultimately leads to Jesus. Is this something that you think you've heard before? Have you grown up with Christianity? And you can tick off that whole unearned grace, yeah, you know, Jesus loves me, I'd like that teddy holding the cushion. Um, that's just like a cheesy thing for biblical themed stationery. But I, actually I want to challenge you to really think this through. How do you think God saves you? You see, our complacency, or at least for me, my complacency, often doesn't actually match up to the emotional map of my life. Life is hard. Life is really confusing. And it goes so fast. The way we live often doesn't actually make contact with that, oh, I know it all, head knowledge. How does God save you? You see, we stumble instead into the flood mindset, the erase mindset, instead of walking in the covenant that God has promised to us. Sometimes we think that God's out to trick us, like he's like, oh, maybe I'll give you this kind of life, and then he just washes it all away. Or maybe we just, our relationship with God is just based around that idea of of like the flood mindset, of almost like a reset button. If you think about it, the flood is kind of just like a giant reset button on the whole earth. Wipes out all the pain, all the darkness, all the fear, all the worries, all the tears. Everything that's bad about the world, it, the flood just wipes it out. It's kind of it's the easy option, and we're just and our relationship with God is just in that flood mindset of just just give me a reset, God. Just give me that flood. Just wipe it out. Wipe out the issues in my marriage. Wipe out the issues I've got with my degree. Wipe out this homesickness. Wipe out our financial troubles. Wipe it out. Reset my kids' behaviour. Reset my friendships. Reset that relationship. Reset my career. Just give me a reset. Just give me, just give me that flood. Just wipe it out. If you could just... God, if you could just wash away that part of scripture. If you could just... Get rid of that casual remark that I just can't let go of that's, that hurts. Just get rid of that habit, that, that part of me that I, don't, that I don't really like or I know is, is destructive. Erase it. Erase it for me. How do you think God saves us? How do you think God saves us? This is hard. I don't want to do it. This is too difficult. I want to give up. I don't want to do it anymore. I did that this week, so I'm not mocking you. <laughs> and this is too difficult. I don't want to follow you anymore, God. This is too hard. Why can't I just sit on the fence again? How do you think God saves you? Through a reset button? Through erasing your problems? Through erasing that part of your life? No. But we prefer the flood mindset. We don't like the story very much, but we prefer the flood mindset because it's, it's cleaner, it's quicker, it's easier. And that would make us feel just like safe. I just want to feel safe. I just want to feel like everything's okay. I don't need to be in control. I just want to be safe. But God didn't give his covenant to make you feel safe. He gave us his covenant to save us. To make you saved. You don't need to start from square one. You need Jesus to meet you on the square that you're stood on right now. You need to walk forward from that square and live in his covenant and live in that promise of life. He came to turn things around, not just to wipe it out. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. This is the covenant. I establish between me and all life on earth. Whether you like it or not, God came to save, not erase. In making this unbreakable promise with us and the whole of creation, God looks ahead to the ultimate turnaround, the ultimate salvation, the ultimate cost, the ultimate way he limits himself, not just in covenant, but by becoming human, in sending his son, Jesus, to join us, to walk with us amongst the mess and the darkness of our world. How do you think God saves us? Are you walking with Jesus in the security of of that unbreakable promise of life? Or are you living a safe life, just waiting for your reset, waiting for your flood to wash it all away? Are you living a saved life, Or a safe life. You need to decide to live by it now. God's promises are to live by. They're not just a nice encouragement along the way. His covenant is ever before him. In that rainbow, that lovely, cheesy, but actually astonishing rainbow. His covenant, he remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. We can't seem to remember it though. Imagine, imagine how different our lives would look in in total security. What would happen in our university? What would happen in your house? What would happen in your marriage? Imagine the transformation of your relationships and of your finances and of your schools, your businesses, the workplaces. Imagine, Imagine your entire attitude turning around because you know that God keeps his promises and you walk secure in that. Imagine the difference. I'd like to invite you to stand and we're going to respond. And I'd like you just to, um, just to think um, about what square are you on? Where are you stood? how do you think God saves you? Not just what you know, what are you living by? When you walk out of this building, how are you going to know you're saved? Not just an emotional or touchy-feely thing. How are you going to know the truth of how God has saved you? How are you going to walk in that covenant, in that promise? So I want you to... um, I'm going to pray over you guys. We're going to pray together and then we're going to respond. But I want you just to think about what, what square are you on? The reset button is square. trying to get back to square one. Just erase my problems. Erase this. Erase that, God. Just wipe it out. That's the flood mindset. That would be square one. You're on square like 661 right now. What does it look like to move forwards? What does it look like for Jesus to meet you right where you're at on the square that you're on in your life? So just just bring to mind what your square looks like. How far are you on? What's going on? What would it look like to go backwards? What would it look like to just have everything erased and go back to square one? And then realise how much better it is for Jesus to meet you on the square that you're on right now. To turn things around. To enable you to raise your faith so that you can live by his promises, by his covenant. God saves you right from the square that you're standing on. To step forwards is to step forwards in faith, in that covenant, in that promise. To step backwards is just to want a reset, to want the flood. God's promised he's not going to do that again. So Father God, thank you so much for your word, thank you for your promises, thank you that you are faithful beyond anything that we can imagine. Jesus, I thank you that you meet us right where we're stood, that whatever our our square looks like, whether it looks painful, whether it looks empty, whether it looks boring, whether it looks frustrating, whether it's crowded and you feel like everyone else is in on your square... God, I thank you that, that you walk directly towards us and you meet us right where we're at. That you make your unbreakable promise with each and every one of us. And God, I pray over each of us that we would understand what it means to live by your faithfulness, to live in security, knowing that you are for us and you're not against us. That you are our Father. You're not distant. You're not far off. You, you, just, you catch your breath when you see us. You know us. You love us. And God, we want, we thank you that you've given us that access. You've given us, you've given us that point of access with you, of, of knowing you. Father, we want to step forward and walk in your promises and walk in your covenant. Show us what it means to be saved. Thank you, Jesus. i